I've sung, sung that song, Love Lifted Me, for a long time. Grew up with it. Uh, never meant more than it did this morning to me. As I contemplate this message and what God wants to do in the hearts and lives of people who are in this room, the possibility, the potential within believers in Jesus who take seriously the challenge that is in this text, no telling what could happen. You know, uh, it's ordinary people through which God does extraordinary things. And the difference between ordinary things and extraordinary things is following God. Amen? I think Barbara Bush followed God's call on her life. Janet and I had the opportunity to meet her and President George H.W. Bush 25 years ago at a reception at the home of Drayton McLean. And we actually visited with the Bushes and came away so impressed with Barbara and just her presence and her humor, her wit, uh, and the sparkle in her eye. And we have lost, someone said, the matriarch of the land this week. But not really lost her. Instead, remember her and seek uh, to know, God, what do you want me to do? In the midst of uh, my own challenges and calling. So, I'm anxious to see what God will produce as we take a look at this text and internalize it. I uh, was in California this week and the missions pastor at First Baptist Church San Francisco and I had lunch together just accidentally. And I told him about our care effect. And he said, I got to learn more about this. Uh, his name is Wilfred and he is a man from India. And uh, he has this unique assignment in San Francisco to be the missions pastor for First Baptist Church. I said, Wilfred, our, our churches are kin, and maybe we can help each other. So we exchange information and tend to talk about what God is doing with the care effect in New Orleans and in his church. Sat down with a pastor on a bus, and he leaned up and said, I have a layman in my church who's made a lot of money. He came to me and wanted to know how he could design a ministry of care and love in our city. And I gave him your book, The Care Effect. He said he has designed this ministry around the principles in The Care Effect. And so I'm interested in learning more about that because The Care Effect came right out of the text we're going to look at here in just a moment. All right? So, I don't know what God wants to do, but I, I know that God wants to do more than we envision, sometimes more than we allow He can through us. So, I want you to think big this morning, okay? As we look once again at the story that moves the world, generation to generation, the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. I'm going to 
just kind of talk through the story. A lawyer came, threw a question out to test Jesus. This is verse 25 of Luke 10. What must I do, he said, to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does it say in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replied, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, willing to justify himself, asked, and who is my neighbor? He has two questions, you see. He has the question about eternal life. An important question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The word inherit indicates the man has some sense of the sovereignty of God in regard to his eternal life. For you do not inherit so much what you deserve. You inherit based on your father and who he is or your family and who they are. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus throws the question back at him, and he comes up with what we call the great commandment. Love God, love your neighbor. Not original with Jesus. Jesus does say these are the two great commandments. He says in another place, the great commandment is love God. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Both of these are from the book of Deuteronomy. The lawyer's problem is not so much with the first command as it is with the second. Maybe he assumes, like many people do, that he loves God because he does his religious duties, he takes care of his devotions, he goes to church, he prays, he sings the songs, he calls himself a spiritual man. So he supposes he keeps the first commandment, love God with all your heart. But that second commandment, that second commandment is troublesome. It is. It's difficult. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he wants to ju justify himself, not so much in regard to the first, but in regard to the second. Because the second command troubles not only him but all of us. And his friends and the rabbis have gathered around to figure out how one may keep the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourselves. It seems impossibly large. It seems it needs borders and parameters and maybe some definition. And so they've begun to work on the definition of the word neighbor. Hoping that if they can define neighbor right... They can keep the commandment. Some of the rabbis now were teaching that a neighbor was a fellow Jew. And the word neighbor did not include Samaritans or Gentiles. 
And so this was a relief to many Jews who hated Gentiles and Samaritans and did not want to be neighbors to them. And so they were glad to know that the word neighbor did not apply to these awful people. Now they came to that conclusion despite this truth. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, where the Bible says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. It also says, care for the stranger in your land. And love him as you love yourself, for you were strangers in Egypt. That's Leviticus 19, verses 33 and 34. A very important text for understanding this command. The second command, then, love your neighbor as yourself, comes to Jesus in this question, who is my neighbor? Last week, we looked at what does it mean to love. And we said, love walks into a trial. Love pours the healing vial. Love goes the second mile. And we see that in the story of the Good Samaritan. Today, we return to the original question, who is my neighbor? I want you to get this. I want you to hear Jesus. Jesus is Lord, right? Everything revolves around him, right? We are Jesus people. So Jesus is going to tell us who our neighbor is. And if we can keep this second commandment, hearing Jesus understanding the definition of neighbor, then we will really live. We will live in the maximum way. We will live abundantly. We will have a quality of life that surpasses all others. If we can hear Jesus on this, it will change our lives and maybe change our world. So Jesus tells the story of a man going from Jerusalem way up here down to Jericho way down here. 19 miles dropping some 3,500 feet in altitude until you're below sea level down in Jericho. And he falls among robbers. The robbers beat him up, wound him, leave him half dead. A priest comes by that way, sees the man, and hurries by on the other side of the road. So also a Levite, when he comes, goes by on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan comes by that way and has pity or compassion on the man. And he goes to him and he binds up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Then he sets him on his donkey and takes him to the inn and stays with him through the night, caring for him. And the next morning, he goes to the innkeeper and he gives him some money and says, take care of him and anything more that you spend on him, when I come back this way, I will repay you. 
Jesus turns to the expert in the law who was testing him to give this expert his own test. Who was the neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The man, unwilling to say a Samaritan, says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. There is in this text the key to maximum living for you personally. An enjoyment of life, a richness in life, a peace, an abundance in life unleashed here in this story. The longest description of the second commandment in the Bible. Jesus' definition of what it means to love your neighbor. The Apostle Paul says this, this one command, love your neighbors yourself, is a summary of all the law. To keep this command is to keep every command in the book. James says of this command, it is the royal law. John says of this command that we must love as Jesus loved us. This command, love your neighbor, is not necessarily about the person next door. Who is my neighbor, Lord? Not necessarily the person next door. There are no addresses here. In fact, this whole event does not take place in a neighborhood. It's not a neighborhood here. He's going through the cliffs. It's wild country. And the robbers take him here because there aren't people around. Not necessarily the person next door to you. So that expands our world some. All right, Lord, if love your neighbor is not just the person next door to me, who might it be then? And the teaching is your neighbor's not necessarily somebody just like you. Not only does address not matter, race and ethnicity does not matter. All right? Now, this contradicts some of the rabbis who are teaching your neighbor is somebody like you, but Jesus is intentionally and on purpose introducing race into this story. This famous story is about a man of race, a Samaritan, a despised race. Some of the rabbis have said, these people can't be neighbors. They're not our neighbors. You don't have to love them. Jesus says a Samaritan came by, thereby indicating to us that people of our race are not necessarily the neighbors. It's more than that. People unlike me, different than me, different color than me, can be my neighbor. Now, sometimes people get upset when you trek into the question of race. You think that's new in the modern world? 
No. Racial hatred and animosity, these borders and barriers that we build are tearing apart the modern world just like we, they did the ancient world. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, what race you are, what color you are. Somewhere embedded in the human heart, there is some kind of pride and some kind of fear that gives birth to this animosity toward people unlike me. Because I'm the best, so if somebody's different than me, they can't exactly be the best. And besides, it makes me afraid if they're not just like me. And because humans everywhere are plagued by pride, have you whipped the pride problem yet? Have you finally got where you're perfectly humble? Do you confess that to your small group? Say to the small group, don't pray for me anymore on pride. I am perfectly humble now. People would laugh at you. If I were to say to you, have you completely conquered fear in your life? You probably would say, no, I haven't. But if somebody in your small group should say today, don't pray for me anymore about fear, I have zero anxiety anymore. I have no fear. We know fear and pride are common to the human journey in our lives and in everybody's life. And I just want to let you know, racism and prejudice are products of pride and fear. And the likelihood is that everybody in the room deals with those, with those things sort of on a continuing basis. And sometimes we repent of them and say, Lord, forgive me for that thought I've had, that condemnation I've uttered. Forgive me for that prejudice that's in my heart. I don't know that person. I'm assuming things about, forgive me for that. But we don't achieve perfection with one confession. We discover that over and over again, we got to go to God and say, Lord, keep forgiving me for the pride and fear that makes me think I'm number one in the world and my family and my clan and my race are number one in the world. The pride that wants to elevate me above everybody else and the fear of those who are unlike me. So Jesus says a Samaritan comes by. Now, this Jewish expert has been working to find his place in the story. You understand, when Jesus tells a story, who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells a story. So he's listening up. He wants to find his place. Where am I in this story? And the robbers beat up this fellow. He says, well, I'm no robber. And then the priest is introduced, and he thinks, well, maybe I'm this priest. And the priest walks by on the other side of the road. He says, well, I'm not that priest. And then a Levite comes. Well, maybe I'm the Levite. And the Levite walks by on the other side of the road. And he thinks, well, I'm not the Levite. Who am I in this story? And then Jesus introduces the Samaritan. And the first impulse of this Jewish expert is to say, well, I'm sure not the Samaritan. We have no dealings with the Samaritans. That's not me. And slowly but surely, Jesus pushes the expert in the law into the ditch. 
Who is he? In the story. He's the Jewish guy in the ditch. That's who he is. Now that'll be hard on your pride. To think of yourself as the one in the ditch. But to really get the story, you got to own it. You got to own it. That's where Jesus wants you. You want to be the hero, I know. You want to be the hero of the story. But Jesus is going to reverse the role in such a profound way that not only would you leave thinking, I should be kind to Samaritans, but you'll also think, Samaritans, who would have thought it? Samaritans could keep the second commandment. Samaritans have full dignity and worth before God. Samaritans can be the hero of the story. It's an amazing reversal. And Jesus is conveying to us this truth that these people of color, those folks that are different from you, not only can you be a neighbor to them, they can be a neighbor to you in your need. Maybe you're not the hero. Maybe you're the man in the ditch. Church of Jesus Christ, wouldn't it be wonderful if all around this hate-ravaged world people looked at followers of Jesus and said, they love everybody. It's amazing. They love everybody. Over there at First Baptist Church, they love you no matter what color you are, where you're from. They love you. The church has this amazing opportunity to demonstrate to the world a love the world does not naturally possess. You know, we gravitate toward our own. That's how gravity pulls us. We gravitate to people like us. We know that's true. Everybody in this room knows that's true. Jesus died to bring down the biggest barrier between ethnic groups that existed on planet Earth. The barrier between Jew and Gentile. And Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible says, He himself is our peace. Who has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Does everything really revolve around Jesus? Is he the center of it all? Is he really? He tells this story, and we all know it's true. Jesus laid down his life for people of every hue. For all the people... God so love the whole world that he gave his son and now he's teaching us how we can follow him in a world full of conflict and difficulty and hatred and fear by loving people across the boundary lines 
across the artificial barriers we built, loving them as he has loved us. Brothers and sisters, I can't open up your heart and look at it. But I will tell you that I was a boy back in 1960 when segregation was outlawed in this land. And if you were there, you know the strife and difficulty. And God gives us an opportunity sometimes in our own journey to see the possibilities that are there if we just simply receive the truth. The story that's being told of a Samaritan who kneels beside a wounded man and thus keeps the second command. Lord, if address doesn't matter, and ethnicity and nationality and country of origin, if all those things don't matter, what matters about a neighbor? How do I identify my neighbor in a world full of hurt and trouble? where there's more pain than any one person can address in a thousand lifetimes, what am I to do? And Jesus tells the story, so we will know. Need matters. Need matters. I don't guess the Samaritan would have necessarily stopped if the fellow who, who fell among thieves hadn't fallen among thieves. Maybe they just said hello and passed each other on the road. Need matters. The Samaritan comes by need and he stops to help. Hey, the priest went by the same need. Jesus says it this way. He happened along that way. Just happened. You know, it was coincidence. If he'd taken another route, he wouldn't have encountered the need. He took this route. It just happened that he went this way. And he comes upon this man in need. Just as you will come upon people in need tomorrow and through every day throughout your life. What kind of need? Maybe not necessarily this kind of need. But you will come upon need. And... It's on your life journey, and you come by, and maybe you're thinking, man, I wish I was someplace else so I wouldn't have to have this moral dilemma. Do I stop and help? Do I seek to give aid or not? I just happened along here, of course. There you are now. Are you going to help or are you not? Are you going to step in? It's a mess. It's always messy. Maybe he's a thief himself and his comrades are hiding in the cliffs and as soon as I stop, they're going to jump on me. I mean, there's no way to eliminate all of the eventualities of stopping to help somebody in need. And so most of the world is the priest and the Levite. It could even be you. 
the culture might tell you it's a better place to be this other side of the road you might actually hear that from people thinking they're giving you good advice stay out of it the good news is this if the church of Jesus Christ rose up as an army to say Lord show us the need and help us love our neighbor it would be an astonishment to the entire world if we could actually live out responding to need so that need prompts the church of Jesus Christ to move in every setting what a difference it would make in the world well there's lots of need what else identifies my neighbor maybe the opportunity to help I mean, we could give the priest and the Levite the benefit of the doubt and say they were hurrying on because absolutely there was no way for them to stop. Samaritan maybe has the capacity to stop and take some time. The opportunity that affords itself is part of how you identify your neighbor. Your neighbor, Jesus says, is somebody in need and somebody you have the opportunity to help. You may have thought of somebody that's in need. You don't have the opportunity to help. An ex-spouse, for instance. You can't go there because it just won't work, you know? Romantic entanglements sometimes just disqualify you from being the rescuer. So you can probably think of ones that are in need, but you're just not the one to help, okay? But you just keep your eyes open because there's going to be somebody in need that you can help. And you have the opportunity. Don't underestimate your capacity. Don't underestimate your capacity to help, to love your neighbor. Somebody in this room could start a movement of addressing need in the world that would circle the globe. People have done it in response to the Good Samaritan story. They have stood up and said, I see a need. Lonely people living in little rooms in nursing homes and nobody goes to see them. And I'm going to give some time because I see that need and I have the capacity and opportunity, so I'm going to be the one. Now, I don't know what God will do with you who respond to the need you see. But I know this. It's amazing what God's already done with people like you who rose out of the pew to say, I see a need. I have the opportunity. I'm going to love my neighbor as I love myself. You don't have to live like this. You don't have to. You can say no. You can define your neighbor in such a way that you're already keeping the command. No lifestyle change necessary. 
Or you might say, God, you're the one who picks neighbors. Now, see, this is what I, I really believe. You don't have to worry about who your neighbor is. God will pick them for you. Okay? You'll be going on your journey, going along the way, see somebody in need, and whoa, all of a sudden you know this is yours. Has that ever happened to you? Let me see your hand if that's happened to you. You've been moving along, this is my, yeah, all over the room, okay. God picks your neighbor's In his sovereign will and purpose, he identifies in your heart the needy one to whom you should respond. And all of the complications and possibilities and eventualities of that melt into the distance now. Because it's not a matter of calculation anymore. It's a matter of hearing the Spirit speak, prompting your heart to be the neighbor. If you will open up yourself to such a possibility, to such an encounter, God will provide you a neighbor to love. And there's one thing guaranteed about loving your neighbors, you love yourself. It will change you. I don't know about your neighbor. I don't know about your community. I don't know about your family. I don't know about your world, but... It will change you. And there's one other certainty that you'll discover in loving your neighbor. It pleases the Father who sent his love down to rescue you so that you might rescue others. Bow with me, please. Maybe the call of God on your life today is just to trust Jesus as Savior and Lord, for Him to be the center of your life. Maybe that's going to take a movement of your heart, a real commitment of purpose in you. And today could be that day. Maybe on the periphery, you felt very comfortable But God's calling you into the center. And you already know what your job is. The Spirit has already told you before you even got to this room what He intends for you to do. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, take this congregation of people, reveal your heart to us, why love came down to save us, Why love is the mandate toward God and neighbor. What power there is and purpose there is in following this second command. Lord, unleash us to do your will in our world through simple obedience, loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. God, we confess It's impossible to get our arms around it. But Lord, we also confess we are willing to be your instruments of grace as you give us guidance 
insight and purpose. And Lord, that we might expend our lives in a way that you expended your life on this earth, being the servant for those in need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.